You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents. Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome on in. A great show indeed for you today with documentary filmmaker, originally from Canada, currently living right in the jungle of New York City. Her name is Gia, J-I-A, Wirtz. And she, in my lifetime, ladies and gentlemen, is the very first Gia I have ever met in my entire life. Filmmaker extraordinaire. We're going to talk all about her and bring her in right now. Gia Wirtz, come on in here and say hello to our worldwide audience. Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my. Let me see. I don't know where to start with you because you have done some pretty amazing things in what was a rather distinct mission that you had in life, which was to try to help those individuals through your film career that were wrongfully convicted by the United States criminal justice system. But before we get into that, and that's going to be a deep subject, but before we get into that, you actually left a 20-year fashion career for all this, right? I did. I did. I worked in the fashion industry in business operations for, like you said, almost 20 years and then realized, you know, it just wasn't fulfilling at one point. And a few things happened, which um, I'm sure we'll get into, but I listened to the Serial podcast and that really just ignited something. Something. And I wanted to help people who had been wrongfully convicted. And then I also had my son. And so I was kind of in between. I wasn't working at the time. I was a stay-at-home mom. So it was easier to make the transition into something else because I'd already kind of given up what I had been doing previously. So a lot of things happened that got me here. But I did leave that career behind to uh, go into documentary filmmaking. Now, the serial podcast that you just mentioned, I'm unfamiliar with it. Will you describe that to me and to the listeners? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. You have to listen to it. It's like, it's the podcast that really made podcasts, like put podcasts on the map, I should say. It was um, done by NPR. And it was about a wrongful conviction about Adnan Syed. He was a 17-year-old kid in high school in Baltimore. And his ex-girlfriend, unfortunately, was murdered. And the police pinned the murder on him without any evidence and some kind of junk evidence as well. He, unfortunately, is still in prison and has is almost 40 now. And, um, you know, it's just he's stuck in the legal system and, and can't get out. And uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of podcasters actually working on his case uh, multiple different podcasts have done have, have covered his story and uh, he has a whole whole slew of people that are working on helping him hopefully get a new trial or get out but it's a really really heartbreaking story don't they have laboratories that can prove him innocent now well you know it's so tricky when when People within the legal system, like prosecutors and, uh, you know, all kinds of people don't want that to happen because they're for in Adnan's case, for example, they're not allowing the DNA to be fully tested. And so when they don't allow you to test DNA, that that really hinders getting the information that you need. With the little bit of testing they have done, Adnan's DNA has not been anywhere as far as the crime scene and, and the burial site of the woman who was murdered. But it's just unfortunately not as 
cut and dry as that. And that happened to Jess, who is the subject of my film as well. They denied his DNA testing for years. He could have, I think, saved almost 10 years off his sentence had they allowed his, the DNA to be tested uh, far earlier. Right. Now, your short film is a documentary. I watched it. And I watched it on Amazon Prime. So anybody out there that subscribes to Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free just by having Amazon Prime. You go there. It's called Conviction. And Gia, are you, I know you call yourself the director of the documentary, but aren't you really the producer as well? Yes, I am. Um, However, you know, I started making this film when I, when I first, I should back up, when I first decided to switch careers and go into documentary filmmaking, I enrolled into New York Film Academy to, you know, learn, learn how to do it. And I started filming this film as a student uh, at the school. And uh, so the, the producer credit really goes to New York Film Academy as they helped produce the first half of the film. And then when I graduated, I continued to film and continued working on the film, in which case for the second half, I was a producer. So it's a little bit of, of a, a group effort. Right. Now, when I watched the film, I believe you were credited on there as being the director. That's right. Right. And it's called Conviction, everyone. And you can go up there on Amazon Prime. And Gia, while we're on the subject, is there anywhere else they can go and watch the film? That's the only place it's available right now. I am working on the feature-length documentary of Jeff's story. So um, as you you know, because you watched the short, it really focuses on Jeff's personal struggles and what he went through as an innocent person who was wrongfully incarcerated and how he reintegrates into society when he gets out and all the challenges that he faces. The feature-length documentary will go much deeper into the legal system and really what went wrong and what, you know, how do, first of all, how do people confess to horrific things such as a murder when they didn't commit the murder? And why does DNA sometimes not get permitted to test? And all the kind of things that came into play in, in Jeff's life to to make this, you know, unfortunate incident occur. Um, and so that film, I don't know where that one will be available yet. We're working on just finishing that and then getting distribution for it. So I'll be sure to let you know where people can watch that one once it's released. Absolutely. Now, what is up on Amazon Prime, which that I watched, that is a short film, roughly, what, about 20 minutes or so? Yeah, 21 minutes. You got it. All right. Now, what are you working on now? Like a couple hours worth of an extended story of Jeff, and we're going to get into Jeff later, but you're working on an hour film or a two-hour film, or you don't know at this point. It will be just under two hours, probably 90 minutes to two hours. We're just in the final stages of post-production, so we're in the editing stages. So we'll see what where it lands, but about 90 minutes or so is what we're looking for. All right. Very well. And then, of course, you attended classes at the New York Film Academy, and that really is what prompted you to get rolling, so to speak, on this particular film. That's right. That's exactly right. I, um, you know, what happened actually was when I was about 18, 19 years old, I had read this book called The 16th Round by Reuben Carter. And that was the very first introduction I had to wrongful conviction. And when I read the book, and you know, the book is what the uh, Denzel 
Denzel Washington movie, The Hurricane, was based on. And so that movie was great, and the book was even better. And I read Ruben Carter's words in that book, and I was just really beside myself. I couldn't believe that this could happen to somebody, you know, in, in North America, that somebody could just have done nothing and be railroaded and wrongfully convicted of something as horrific as a murder and be put in max security prison for life when they didn't do anything. It just really shook me to my core. And listening to, or sorry, actually reading Reuben Carter's words, he was such a raw account of a human being just who had lost all his appeals, who was in prison. And he wrote this book as a, you know, any, as a plea. Anybody who can help me or anybody who reads these words, you know, if you, if there's anything within your power to help me get out of here, I, I need the help kind of thing. And it was just heartbreaking. And that, that never left me. I always had it in the back of my mind. I was very uh, curious about wrongful conviction stories. I watched a ton of true crime myself over the years. And then fast forward to 2014, when I mentioned the Serial podcast came out, it was a similar story once again. And it really got me thinking that I wanted to do something to help people that are in this position. And and then I happened to organize a fundraiser for Adnan, the subject of Serial, in New York City, just to help raise some money for his legal defense fund. And as a result, I ended up meeting his family. And they are great friends of mine today. They're just the most wonderful people. And so I was sitting at Adnan's post conviction hearing and there was a camera crew there and it was just a few people and they were filming and the family ended up telling us that that was the HBO crew and they were filming an HBO documentary called The Case Against Adnan Syed. And I was so naive, had zero experience in filmmaking. I had a 20-year background in photography, so I knew my way around a camera zero experience in filmmaking. And I remember looking at these three people, two or three people, a cameraman, a producer, maybe one other person. And I was like, HBO is huge. They're making an HBO doc. And I was like, I can do this. This is how I can help people who've been wrongfully convicted. I can help tell their stories. And so I promptly went home, you know, talked to my husband about it. He thought I was a little bit crazy, I think. Um, but we enrolled into your film academy anyways. And that's where I was looking for somebody, a subject for my film. And the only person I knew personally that had been through something like this was Jeff. And I had met Jeff because he was a speaker at the fundraiser that I had organized for Adnan. And so I reached out to Jeff and said, hey, you know, I'm going to start working on this documentary. Would you want to be the subject of my film? And we had a little brief conversation about what I was hoping to get on film and what my kind of take was on the whole thing. And he said, yes. And we got rolling and we started filming while I was in school. So that's how it really came about. Now, what intrigued you to work in the field of wrongful convictions? It was really just those two things, the, the Reuben, Carter book, Reuben Carter's book that really just stuck with me. And, and, and that, book, that book, I think you said it was called The 16th Round, and describe it. What is that book about? That book is about Reuben Carter. He was a famous boxer, I think, in the 60s in, I believe it was New Jersey. And was it New Jersey? I think so. And he... He had gone into little, he had like done some little petty crime as a kid. And uh, he, you know, was from a rougher neighborhood and things like that. We had little run-ins with the law. Uh, but when he was, he was a famous boxer and there was a murder one night and he got wrongfully convicted for that murder uh, because the cop said that his car, I think brake lights matched the brake lights of the murderer who was a getaway car. And anyways, long story short, he got convicted of murder and, 
And then he wrote this book once he was in prison as a plea for help. It was really crazy to me because if you think about the world we live in today, I can't imagine a famous person getting wrongfully convicted for murder just with the resources they have. And, you know, and of course, today we have things like cell phones and you can track your whereabouts and you have emails that are timestamped and receipts and everything. And back in the 60s, you didn't have social media, you know, mobile smartphones and things like that. And so I guess today it'd be much harder for something like that to happen. But it always seems alarming to me that that was something that was able to occur back then. And so, yeah, and then Reuben Carter went on after he got out to to be an advocate for people who've been wrongfully convicted and and helped a lot of people afterwards. It's a very inspiring story. He's a very inspiring person. Now, didn't you just tell me a few moments ago that there are certain states that will not allow a lab to test a subject against the evidence to see if the DNA matches, which could end the whole entire case and find out whether he is guilty or innocent right there. Did I hear you say that certain states will not allow the scientists and the laboratories to test a defendant? So I don't know if it's certain states. I don't know um, what the state-by-state laws are, but what I do know is that there are the district attorney's office can say no. There, there are people in certain positions who can deny the DNA testing. They can say, I don't feel it's necessary. And that's what's happened in you know, Adnan's case, for example, and happened to in Jeffrey's case for years. And it's very, very unfortunate. I don't think that should be permitted. I think it should be standard protocol for testing to be done in every case, 100% of them. Oh, I agree. 100%. I mean, it's available. It should just be tested. It should tell us everything that it can tell us. Definitely. Okay. Now let's get in to what your film conviction is about. It was your, basically your first attempt via attending the New York Film Academy and making this documentary of which you give them credit for actually you you getting the ball rolling. But then you went on later to receive awards on that. Did you not? Yeah, yes, I did. Um, it's been it was really surprising at first. I was shocked and it's been such a, a great ride right away. I think what how it started is one of the professors in the school watched the one of the final versions of my film when we were in an editing class. And he said, you should submit this to film festivals. And I had never been to a film festival. I definitely didn't know how to submit films to a festival. And I didn't really know anything about it. But this uh, professor he had a film that had done really well in festivals. And so I really took his words to heart and I put a lot of weight in what he said. And I thought, well, if he thinks so, maybe other people will think so. And so I submitted the film to festivals. I actually learned in school how to do that. And then I went ahead and submitted it. And within about a month, we had been accepted into three festivals. And that was, you know, a real kind of confidence boost. And then, you know, it's been about a year and we've now gotten into... 12 film festivals. Uh, we've won three awards. And um, yeah, I have been on a you know, couple of TV shows talking about true crime and the film. And it's, it's been really great that it's been so well received. I think that's marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. And you bit off a subject which is so intense because there's so much wrong with corruption involved. And you would think that we live in a country, Miss Wirtz, where 
If you have evidence, put it out there so we can clear the cells out and put the guilty in there, not have the innocent remain. And if people say no, that oftentimes is nothing but the ego doing the talking. They just want to win their case. They don't care what they really uh, uh, say or what the evidence is, what the evidence is. Am I right? That's right. You're 100% right. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, there's an organization, the National Police Misconduct Reporting Project they did, and it's it's found that roughly one in five officers um, are implicated in active misconduct, and more than half of all wrongful criminal convictions are caused by misconduct. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, you know, this. If the officers involved are guilty of it, I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but I'll bet you dollars to donuts if I had it to put on the table that more than half of the time, which is most of the time, if that corruption is there in the employee, it starts at the top because the top Mm -hmm. is going to know what's going on. They're not blind. They know what's happening and they look the other way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, often there's tunnel vision. They don't want to admit that they're wrong after, even if they realize they were wrong. And it, it's really unfortunate that, like you said, just the ego would allow you to leave an innocent person in prison just because you can't admit that you made a mistake or that you had the wrong person from the get-go or, you know, what have you. It's really, really sad and unfortunate. We may damage some sensitive egos, Gia. Uh, you know, that's all. Oh, now, isn't that a shame? Yes. Don't don't hurt those egos. Oh, boy. I'll tell you what. How about this? 10,000 people are wrongly convicted every year. Do you agree with that statement or not? You know, I don't know. I mean, probably. I don't know the yearly, um, an- like the annual number, but I do know that the Innocence Project estimates that anywhere from 2 to 5% of all prisoners in the U.S. are innocent. And so that means there's about 120,000 people innocent in prisons in America, which is an astounding number. All righty. Since 1973, more than 8,700 people in the United States have been sent to death row. At least 182 of them are not guilty. Would Mm -hmm. you concur with that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I haven't looked at those numbers recently, but yeah, I have in the past. And I looked at your conviction movie Facebook page, I believe, and you have a quote on there about those 180 people, 182 people who are allegedly not guilty. There's a quote that says, quote, their lives upended by a system that nearly killed them. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, it's an intense subject. It takes more education in this country to be a barber and to cut someone's hair than it does to receive a badge and a gun and go out in the name of the government and have somebody's life on your hands. I don't think that's right either. Where is the education process that will stop this 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 whatever you want to call it, but whatever it is, it's not good. Wow, that's a that's a crazy comparison I've never heard before. That's that's just insane. Okay, so your conviction short film is about a man named Jeffrey Deskovic. And when he was a child, he was 16 years old, 15. He was convicted at age 16 of rape and murder up in Peaksville, New York back in 1989, and he received 16 years 
in maximum security. Am I right so far? And what do you have to add to that? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He went to a max security male prison at the age of 17. Okay. At the age, I mean, he was convicted at 16. He was, right. He was. And when the alleged crime occurred, which, by the way, they now have the real killer who admitted to it, when that crime occurred, how old was he then? Was he 15 or was he 16? He was 16. Okay. Now, they claim that he was... Oh, I don't know the word. What is the word? Uh, bullied into a confession. Coerced. How about that? Coerced. Co- coerced yeah. into a wrongful confession. And Lord, we can do the whole hour, Gia, on that technique <laughs> alone. Can we not? That's right. I, uh, oh my, you're getting my emotions running high. It is not a good subject, and I am very upset about it, but let's just move forward enough to say that the real killer came about and describe to the listening audience, Gia, how that happened. How did they come up with the real killer and how do they know, I believe it's by lab results, but how do they know the real killer isn't just talking through their head and saying they did it because they're mentally ill, but they're the real person that really did it because it can be proven. How did that person come about and how did the evidence back that up? The really funny thing about that is all the time that Jeff was in prison, wrongfully, he was writing letters to people, trying to get anyone to listen that could help him. And he was advocating for the DNA that was, you know, sitting in, you know, the evidence files to be tested. And he had been denied that testing for so long. And then eventually he got the Innocence Project involved and they had the DNA tested. And it was because of that DNA test that they were able to run through their criminal database that they found the match to the real killer. And then the real killer went on to confess. And of course, they had his DNA matching the the semen found in the woman who was raped and murdered. So it was, you know, the two things together, they had all the proof they needed. But it was because of Jeff's constant request to get the DNA tested that they were even able to find the real person. So we have the Innocence Project to thank for the real killer now being incarcerated. Would that be correct? Yeah, and Jeff himself, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Now, let me fast forward here because where Jeff is in life today is absolutely astounding. Tell the audience where he is and what he's doing for a living. Isn't it astounding? It's amazing. Uh, so I don't want to give away. It's amazing. He's an amazing human. I can't imagine coming from where he was to where he is today. Now, I don't want to give away the end of the film. So okay. I'm not say All right. You don't have to. But... You don't have to. Let's <laughs> just say he's doing it. well. He's doing well. Yes, he's doing very, very well, and he's a huge advocate for people who've been wrongfully convicted, and he's helped so many people. Uh, I'll leave it at that, but definitely it's so much more than that. He didn't just get out and go on with his life and turn his head the other way. He actually went on to help others that were in a similar situation. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And you know, when I was interviewing him for one of the scenes in the film, I asked him, I said, why didn't you just, you know, take your, once he got out, he sued the prosecutor that got, that coerced the confession out of him and he got a good settlement. And I asked him, why didn't you take that settlement money and just go live in Bahamas or something and just enjoy the rest of your life? I mean, he was, I think, 36 years old, I think at the time. Um, He could have just 
to have, or 34 maybe even. But anyways, he was mid-30s and he could have just enjoyed his life from that point forward and relaxed, you know. And he said, I didn't even think about it for a second. He said that essentially would be turning my back on all the other people I knew who were in the same position I was, who were wrongfully convicted. And it's not something I could do because, you know, people had turned his back, turned their back on him. And he just didn't want to do that to other people. That is amazing. And it shows that the man deep down has a heart. Is he, do you think, bitter? Or does this kind of prove that he does have a heart and he wishes to give back to society despite what society did to him? Uh, Well, yes, all of those things. He has a huge heart, for one, and he definitely, definitely is given back to society. I mean, 10 times more than he needed to, I would say. Uh, he, He just has a lot of drive. And he says himself that, you know, going through this, while it was horrific, it gave him a clear cut mission in life. And he knows that this is his mission and this is what he has to do. And he is hyper focused. I mean, Jeff is one of these people who is, from what, from my perspective, seems like he's always working. He is always, always working on uh, anything that he can, whether it be legislation and other people's cases and giving advice and all kinds of things, doing um, talks and speeches and a podcast and raising awareness. It's really, really amazing to see. Has he spoken, for example, in front of the Senate or the Congress that you know of? Yeah, he has. Oh, my, my, oh, my. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Gia Wirtz. She's a documentary filmmaker. If you are a subscriber to Amazon Prime, you can go up there right now. It won't cost you any additional funds. All you got to do is belong to Amazon Prime. Her documentary is entitled Conviction, and that's what we are discussing today. Now, Gia, You and I, although I don't rarely do it, in fact, I almost never do it where I speak to my guests in advance of the show. Usually what people hear from me is discussions that have occurred the first time when the show is produced. But you and I did talk earlier and you mentioned to me that the audience for these true crime stories, such as what you produced in your film, is largely women. And I would like to know, why is it that this true crime appeals to women and what they find so fascinating about it, if you know? Yeah, that is so interesting because I am one of the women in this statistic. I find true crime fascinating, and I'm always watching true crime far before I ever got into filmmaking. I was constantly watching true crime. Um, so this subject really, really fascinates me as well. Women, women watch, well, first of all, let me start off by saying that approximately 75% of true crime audience is female, whether that be podcast or television, which is a huge number. And there's a few reasons why this is. One, women watch true crime, not just, you know, as a entertainment as a television show, they watch it because they want to understand what triggers the crime. Studies have um, shown that women are much more likely than men to fear becoming victims of crime, which, you know, makes makes perfect sense. And uh, actually, their, their fear of crime, I believe, is three times higher than that of, of men. And so they watch it as kind of a learning experience. They want to understand what triggered a crime so they can avoid those things. Which is fascinating. Okay, what is three times higher than men? Say that again. What is three times higher than the men? Women's fear of crime. Oh, fear of crime. Okay, go ahead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing that's interesting is that they they not only watch it to 
like learn and understand what triggers a crime, but they often change their day-to-day behavior based on what they see in these stories. So for example, they might see what happened to somebody else and they'll, and I'm a hundred percent one of these people who's done this throughout my lifetime, actually. They'll watch these cases and see what happened and then they'll change their daily behavior. For example, they won't work, walk through a dark parking lot at night, or they won't jog through a park after sunset, or uh, they'll block their front door at night when they go to sleep. So if anyone wants to break in, they'll hear, you know, bottles falling or something like that. They're much more careful when they're home alone. They can just all kinds of things. And, and I've done this. I remember being quite young and hearing about the Central Park jogger case in New York. And I lived in Canada at the time. And I never, ever, ever went jogging in a park after that, ever, because it was just terrifying that that could happen. And so it's just really, really interesting that women watch true crime so that they can almost uh, learn some life-saving tactics through the, the shows or the films. That, that is, are you working on, I'm going to get ahead of myself a wee bit, but are you working on another film that's unrelated to this, another true crime film, so to speak, in the works? Or are you still doing all of your work to make the expanded version of your current documentary called Conviction? I am spending, you know, 90% of my time on the expanded version of Conviction. However, I have started writing uh, my third film and doing some research on it. I'm not sure if that'll be the, the one I'm the one I've started researching. If that'll be the case, I move forward with. But I am just starting to figure out what the next film will be, so I can start working on that. Since the feature length version of Conviction is almost finished, we're in post production, so uh, hopefully we can wrap it up. Absolutely. I hope you do. And I hope you can move forward. You write for Forbes magazine. Is that correct? I do. Yeah. And what do you write about uh, there? And there I write about really my previous career. I've written for them for a handful of years. And so I've been writing for them since I worked in the fashion industry. Uh, So I write about uh, entrepreneurship and e-commerce growth strategies. And so I don't work in that field so much anymore, but I've uh, continued to write for Forbes because it's a great gig to have. And it's uh, it's really fun to to write for them, and and uh, it still keeps me, you know, on my toes in the business world, which is always helpful in all aspects of life. <laughs> oh, definitely. Now, with the success of the film and the awards that you have won with the film, do they ever ask you to come to speak to the colleges, the universities, the high schools, etc.? Yes, actually, with the film, I've done quite a few um, talks and screenings at uh, universities and high schools and uh, I think even a junior high school it's a middle school I think you guys call it in the states (laughs) Uh, it's been really great where I live seventh eighth and ninth grades are called junior high yes that's what they were called in Canada my entire life and then I got to the states and it was all different (laughs) right yeah well years ago ninth grade was thrown in there in the high school but they they removed it years ago over here now it's 10th 11th and 12th which is your high school yeah it's so interesting it's been so great though um, doing those uh, screenings and talks at these schools because uh, not only are some of the students, well, most of the students are law students, and so they'll go on to be future jurors or lawyers or, you know, lawmakers or what what have you. So it's really nice to speak to them and, and hopefully, you know, 
make them think about things slightly differently if they're not already. But also I found like, for example, in one of the most recent ones I did, the students had such interesting questions. And some of these questions I have incorporated in the feature length doc. There are questions I went back and ended up asking Jeff and other people, other subjects of um, other people in the film, I should say, because there were questions I hadn't thought of. So it's just really interesting when you get a group of people, especially a group of 30 or 50 people together to see what, you know, what comes about. That was going to be my next question. Were they dull and poorly phrased questions or are these kids today coming up using their heads for something other than a hat rack, you know, with the baseball (laughs) hat turned backwards? They were very, very good questions, thoughtful questions. Um, And Jeff himself joined me for some of these QAs. So it's been really fascinating and interesting to see what kind of questions they had for him. Uh, It's been a great experience, I think, for the students and for myself. You have to admit that the citizens of our great nation here today, they are the opinion and the current tide is changing. And they're getting fed up with some of this stuff that's going on. Will you give me that much? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. I agree with that statement. Absolutely. A doctor, a doctor needs to purchase malpractice insurance in case they mess up, which they're going to do a small percent of the time, I hope. And I I actually hope they don't do it at all. But if they screw up (laughs) at least once, somebody could die. So they have to purchase Mm -hmm. malpractice insurance. And that comes out most of the time, I'm sure, out of their own pocket. I've heard them complain to me about what they have to pay, the thousands that they have to pay for malpractice insurance. Now, we have other people that work for us, the citizens. They have the opportunity to kill somebody, ruin their life, wipe them out off the face of this earth, and I don't see any malpractice insurance being paid for at all by that individual, Mm -hmm. by that individual themselves. And if they had to cover their own malpractice insurance, you know what I feel? It's my personal opinion. These incidents will drop, drop, and drop. They will definitely go down because people will think twice before they act. That's true. Uh, One of the things I always say is if there was more accountability for prosecutors who engage in misconduct that leads to wrongful convictions, if they just didn't have immunity, that would go such a long way. Qualified immunity has already been removed in the state of New Mexico and in the state of New Mexico and Colorado. That's two states. And you know what? In my opinion, Miss Wirtz, we have more on the way. Hopefully. Hopefully, because I believe when I was speaking to one of the lawyers in the Innocence Project um, and I was researching her, I I read um, and heard her talk about the fact that there's only been one prosecutor in all of the United States that has ever actually been charged with a crime. And when they have, you know, engaged in misconduct or fabricated evidence and such such things, which is crazy to think there's just one person in the entire country. Well, you're dealing with prosecutorial and police misconduct. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, we have a history in that department of people who are not afraid to get up there, even if it means raise their hand in the air and swear falsely that you're about to testify to the truth and they'll get up there and the evidence will later prove that they lied through their teeth. So 
if it happens with the employee, once again, do not try to convince me that those on top don't already know. Because those on top, if that happens one time, that individual who committed those lies and those falsehoods under oath, especially, even if it wasn't under oath, they should be removed, identify them, and get them out of there. That's right. For sure. Oh, my, my, my. You got me triggered. I'm sorry, Gia. (laughs) I'm sorry, Gia. But let's move on. Education. There is no excuse for education not being as high to wear a gun in this country than it is to cut someone's hair. Now, come on. Mm -hmm. Can we get real for a moment, ma'am? I know. I mean, I was, I'm as incensed about all of this as you are, which is why I, you know, switch careers to try and, you know, help in any small way that I can. But it is, it's, it's, it's just insane. It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around sometimes when you see how these things work. I mean, in Jeff's case, when we were talking previously about the DNA, um, the, the testing being denied, Jeff served 16 years of his sentence. And I think if they would have tested the DNA the first time he requested it to be tested, uh, he would have saved 10 years off of his sentence. He would have been out after six or seven years, which is huge when you're 20 years old. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, there should have been a million dollar minimum check waiting to be handed to him the day he walked out of there. I think they should have made him a millionaire instantly. They robbed him of how many years? 15, 16 of his life? Mm-hmm, 16 years. And 16 formative years. I mean, those are the years between the age of 16 and, you know, 34, however old he was when he got out. He was roughly around that age. And those are the years that you, you know, learn who you are and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and usually meet your significant other and date people and figure out what you like and what you don't like. And Jeff talks about that, that he um, has a hard time dating. Because he, one, you know, he didn't get to in the the normal time when people do these things. And secondly, he said that now with the Internet and everything, no matter who he's about to go on a date with or what have you, women will often Google him and know right away that he spent 16 years in prison. And even though they may believe it was wrongfully, you know, he was wrongfully convicted, they are still scared because they think, well, prison is a violent place. So how do you deal with anger? How do you deal with, you know... And so they just want to avoid the scenario altogether. And it ends before it even starts, which is so sad. Uh, So many things about Jeff's scenario to me just really strike a chord and are so sad. One of the reasons the the police officers even honed in on Jeff in the first place is because one, kids in school said he was a quiet kid. And two, when he was at Angela, the, the woman who was murdered at her wake, he was crying a lot. And they they took his emotional response, him crying, as a indication of guilt that he was feeling regret for what he did. Instead of looking at it as he was just sad that this, you know, person that he was an acquaintance of, he knew, uh, had passed away. And when I think back to that, it, it makes me think that Jeff was a really sensitive person, somebody who'd be crying hysterically at the wake of an acquaintance is somebody who's extra sensitive. And then you're putting that extra sensitive person behind bars as a child in an adult prison. I mean, how is that person supposed to survive in that environment? It's just, it's just so heartbreaking. If he was a minor at the time that they allegedly coerced a confession out of him, he was a minor. He was a child. A child is no match 
for a seasoned interrogator who is going to lie if they have to and say anything that they have to to coerce a confession out. Where is the attorney sitting next to that child representing him? Was there one there? There wasn't. And that was the thing. I mean, the police really, in this case, really almost groomed Jeff to coerce a confession out of him. For months, they would visit him, see him at school, um, take him to the crime scene, things like that, and feed him details and pretend that he was helping them with the investigation. And as a kid, Jeff had dreamt of being a police officer. So he was very intrigued with this experience and thought that, you know, I get to, you know, play police officer with these real police officers. And he also didn't have, his dad was never in his life, so he had no father figure. And these police officers had a job he really, you know, was admired. And he thought that one of the men seemed to like really take to Jeff and he thought he was kind of like a father figure type role. So he was more... Uh, open to talking to him. And then after months of doing that, they drove him to a different police station out of his county uh, when his mom didn't know where he was during school hours. And that's where they coerced the confession out of him without a lawyer present. And he didn't know enough. He was 16. He didn't know that he could stop it and ask for a lawyer and things like that. And so they really, they really created the scenario where they could get him alone and all of that. Has anybody stepped up now that the lab results came back and said, Jeff, I'm sorry, this should have never happened. We apologize. Uh, we were, uh, we jumped the gun. Uh, I don't know how you may not f- be able to forgive us, but we're asking, will you at least try? Cause we're seriously sorry. Or have, has life just gone on and everybody kept their mouth shut? You know, it's funny that you asked me that because I asked Jeff the exact same question in one of the interviews. Um, and he said, no, he said not a single person has ever apologized. That, and everyone has just went on like it didn't happen. That doesn't shock me, unfortunately. Ladies and gentlemen, if it happens in the ranks, more often than not, the top knows what's going on. And... I don't know. Once again, we're back to egos. And you know, the last I checked, the Constitution of the United States doesn't concern egos. It concerns the rights of the citizen. Or did I misread that, Gia? What, which of the two is it? <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. Thou shalt protect the egos. Yeah. Is that what the forefathers intended? <laughs> right. Wonderful. I know. Oh my, oh my. And you know, the other thing that'll get under your skin, which is just another mind boggling thing in Jeff's case is that, uh, you know, you're supposed to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what our legal system says. And in Jeff's case, when the judge read out his sentence, the judge, the judge's words are actually, you may be innocent, but, and then went on to give his, his, uh, sentence. And just the fact that the judge could say those words, that you may be innocent, seems like, isn't that reasonable doubt? Like if That's you're grounds that for a new be, trial. Right there, I would think that would be grounds for a brand new trial. Yeah, it wasn't, unfortunately, but it's just, it's just crazy, the things that 
that occurred. I would think that a DA, a prosecutor, and these are lawyers, of course, and you would think that they want the real law to be upheld. They don't want to be in bed with some criminal, excuse me, and I don't mean the defendant. I mean someone who's breaking the law under the guise of being somebody that works for the taxpayers, a corrupt person. Why would you want to side with corruption when ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set ye free? Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. No, it surely does not. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see the documentary film, it is entitled Conviction. It is by my guest today, Gia, J-I-A, Wertz, W-E-R-T-Z, a bright young lady with a bright career ahead of her who wants to make an impact upon society and why did you want to make the impact? Was this something in your heart which just was gnawing away and you felt that the stories needed told? Or is this something that you realized later in life by attending the New York Film Academy? No, it was um, the first thing you said. It was really something that was gnawing at me my entire adult life. And I just can't fathom being that person that everybody the entire world believes did something so horrific that you didn't do and then just being silenced and unjustly left in prison and so you know for a long time I racked my brain to think about what can I do and that's why I organized a fundraiser for Adnan years ago and you know other than donating some money and some time like most people I didn't know what else to do the problem is too large there's nothing one person can really do and uh, and then when I realized that when I was at a non-post-conviction hearing that day and saw the HBO crew, I just realized that, you know, I can reach at least a broader audience. I can at least help spread awareness. And that would do a little bit more than just donating some money or some time. And so I just thought that this was a good avenue that could use a skill set that I had because I did know my way around a camera. And um, I thought that this was one way that I could just have a slightly broader reach and spread the word just a little bit more and, you know, do my part. Now, since the film has been released, has any law enforcement, for example, or prosecutor's office ever gotten a hold of you and stated, ma'am, what you've done is a help to society. You're really, you're doing the right thing here. I hate to admit it because there are some bad apples in my profession, but I am not one of them. And I want to congratulate you for what you've done. Has anybody come forward and said that? to you? Um, not lawmakers or anyone as such, but um, definitely law professors, uh, people we've either interviewed with on their podcast have reached out in that way, or um, the, the screenings we've done at some of the schools and things like that, some of the lawyers we've interviewed for the film. Uh, in those instances, yes, there's been people who've said similar things, but uh, not, not anyone that's been completely you know, unrelated to the work that I'm doing. Well, let me put it to you this way. If three people are involved in robbing the bank and two of them go in with pistols and get the money, but the third only sits out in the car in the alley and drives it <laughs> when the other two come out with bags and get in the back seat. They all three get charged, Gia. All three of them are equally guilty. That's right. And if you're watching somebody under your employ do these these illegal acts and wrongfully testify, wrongfully do A, B, C, and D, 
aren't you just as guilty as the guy driving the car? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. If you find out that a person has admitted in the locker room, taking a shower one day after after the shift, and you keep your mouth shut, are you just as guilty as the party that committed the wrong for uh, keeping your mouth quiet? Yeah, and those environments, they, they breed this behavior, right? They, they normalize it and allow it to go on, which is just as much the problem. I believe it's called, and I quote, the good old boys network, end quote. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that? Of course. <laughs> yes, the old good old boys. I'm telling you what, in our lifetime, Gia Wirtz, I don't think the good old boys are going to be totally silenced. But in the next generation, I don't think they're going to be totally silenced. But each and every upcoming generation, as you're starting to look right now at society today, look how much it has changed. Little by little by little, the people are getting sick of it. Because that's why we established this country when we broke away from our prior uh, country, the country of England. We wanted a country that was based upon what the Constitution says. And you know what happens today? They say, well, the heck, well, they don't say the heck, but I'll clean it up. <laughs> They're saying, the heck with that Constitution, you're going to do what I tell you, or you're going to uh, go ahead and pay for it, uh, even if it's wrong. And, and the good old boys, they'll stand together and know it's wrong and keep their mouth shut. Gia Wirtz, I don't know. I don't know what you've done to me. I'm a show business kid. I'm not a documentary <laughs> filmmaker, but I've seen it. I've seen it. You would think with what just went down months ago when it was on fire in Minneapolis that that would be the last we'll hear of Minneapolis. Whoop. Nope. Here we go again. And as we await the verdict on this current trial in Minneapolis, oh, what I don't know. You understand what I'm saying. The people are fed up. I do. I do. Yeah. Oh, my, oh, my. What else would you like to say as I step down off the soapbox, Miss Wirtz? <laughs> what would you like to oh, tell people? And what have I forgotten to ask you that I should have asked you? Oh, I don't think anything. I mean, we're still playing uh, Conviction in some film festivals. So uh, if you're currently not in the U.S. or the U.K. where it's available on Amazon Prime, uh, people can always go to my website, which is just geoworks.com and see all the screenings. And for now, they're virtual. And hopefully soon there'll be some in-person screenings at the theaters whenever we're allowed to, you know, play outside again. And so I would love for anybody who's interested to join us at our screenings. And we do a lot of Q&As. And um, that's about it. If somebody wants to get a hold of you and say, I watched the film, I enjoyed the film, you did a great job, keep it up, what do they do? We have a contact page um, on my website and anybody can reach me at any time. And if they uh, if feel inclined to write a review for the film, they can do that right on Amazon. And I would so appreciate it for independent filmmakers. Uh, those reviews really go a long way for getting distribution for future films and uh, just keeping our films out there in the world. So I would very, very much welcome and appreciate that. Now, the subject of your conviction short film, the documentary that you are currently enjoying the success with, his name is Jeffrey Deskovic. Are you still in contact with him on a regular basis or you talk to him once a year or what's going on there? 
Yeah, Jeff and I talk all the time. Jeff is a good friend of mine now, and um, he he's fantastic. And we often do Q and A's together. Uh, we do a lot of podcasts together, and uh, we touch base here and there. Uh, but yeah, we talk all the time. Now you're married. You have a child. How old is your son? He is three. Oh, he seems he's to be going on ten. Yes, <laughs> that's right. He knows how to work that cell phone you carry better than you do, mm-hmm. probably. All right, what does your oh, husband? Yes. What does your husband think about about all this career you have after you left the fashion industry? Oh, he loves it, and he's uh, he's just the most supportive person in the world. It's really amazing, and he very much enjoys seeing the the growth of the film and all the new opportunities that have come our way. And he, he's you know enjoying the ride just like I am. But it's been quite I don't even know shocking is the right word because we were very surprised at first to uh, get into film festival after film festival and and just everything that's come along since then. Uh, but we're really enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun. It's it's a really great feeling to work on a passion project and have it be received so well. And we both are kind of enjoying the fruits of our labor. Well, I think you should. You worked hard. It shows. It You have won the awards from it. And let me just clarify what my attitude has been throughout all this. I don't think the entire system we have in this nation is corrupt at all. I think there are good and bad in every profession. I think there are people who were raised by parents that instilled in them what is called integrity. You know, the integrity. They wouldn't knowingly do wrong. It would it would hurt them inside. It would almost kill them inside. They weren't raised that way. They're they're good people. They're honest people. They're not corrupt people. They're not untruthful people. But then again, we've got the good old boys, and and I'm sorry, but uh, they need to be identified, and we need to get rid of them. And we're going to have to do in this country what it takes to do that. Uh, uh, Am I missing anything here? Is there anything wrong, do you think, with what I'm proposing? You know, no, and I'm I'm, I'm really glad you said that because I agree. You know, there's not the... It's not that the entire legal system is broken or that everybody is bad. There's lots of great people that that work in the legal system. It is, like you said, in every profession, it's going to be the good and the bad. And it's just the it's just the bad apples that need to not be given a environment to continue to do what they're doing. And there should be consequences so that we can stop these things from happening. But uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Right now, you know, you know something. <laughs> I just read, this is a true statement. It's almost a comedy story. And I don't, <laughs> I'm not here to tell jokes today, Gia. But <laughs> did you read recently? I'm talking a couple days ago. A person was arrested, a male, for trying to, quote, break in, not out, break in the prison. No, to, I did not read that. Break in, not out. And he had Why? cell phones. I, 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 I forget the story. It, it, my mind went crazy when I read it. It was, uh, I can't 
recall where it was. I believe he. they stated that the individual had cell phones and other contraband. I guess he was like like Snap-on tools or, or, or you know, Amazon. He wanted to deliver the goods, you see, he and collect as much. He was the delivery man for the contraband. <laughs> yes, sir. Wow. So, you see, we have bad criminals out there that have no brains, and let's eliminate them. And Oh, by the way, I'm pleased to report from what I read, they accommodated him and gave him a suite where they tried to break in, you know. <laughs> oh, now there's wow. one there's one bad <laughs> apple in the criminal bunch. Now, let's get the dumb and the ones that don't know what they're doing from the other side of the of the fence and get them out too. Clean up the wrong that we can and do what's right for society in general. Is that fair? That's right. Absolutely. Well, there we go. I'm off of my soapbox. I'm off of my high horse. My guest, ladies and gentlemen, is documentary filmmaker Gia Wirtz. She's from right in Canada originally. She now lives right in the heart of New York City. Her current film is available right now for the world to watch on Amazon Prime. It costs no extra fee. If you subscribe to Amazon Prime, Go up there and watch it. It's called Conviction. It's by my guest today, Gia Wirt. And it's been a pleasure. We're delighted to have this bright, young, good-looking gal on here today with a brain in her head and a heart that wants to correct the wrong, which has been perpetrated wrongly against certain members of our society. And God bless this woman for what she is doing, and may she continue to do as well on her future projects as she has done on this wonderful documentary. And I would just like to say thank you all for listening. Gia, at this time, we're going to get out of here. Why don't you just say something to the people like, good night, Gia. Good night, Gia, and thanks for listening, everyone. All right, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today once again, documentary filmmaker Gia Wirtz. Go up to Amazon Prime, watch her film entitled Conviction. This is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. On behalf of myself and documentarian Gia Wirtz, we want to thank you for watching. Have a good week, everyone, and good night. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.